Uh, so today is the seventh um, and final Sunday in the season of Easter. And so there may have been 40 days of a long Lent, but there were 50 days of an even longer Easter celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and all of the hope that is offered when we think about that miraculous occurrence. Uh, which means next Sunday, of course, is Pentecost. This is maybe a little bit small for you to see, but Pentecost serves uh, at this, it is like an inflection point in the church calendar uh, that it connects the first six months of the year for us where we focus our attention on the story of Jesus. And it's a hinge point that turns us into the next six months of the year where our focus is on the story of the people of God. That's how we tell the story. That's the cycle that we live in that gives shape to our lives as Christians and sustains us. We follow Jesus' story and his teaching for this full half of the year, and then we spend the second half of the year focused on what that story means. What does the story of Jesus mean? What is it, has it always meant for the body of Christ, and what does it mean for us today as we continue living out Jesus' story as we worship him and follow in his ways. And as we do that, like, here's a question that I think is thrust upon us as we think about the year in those terms, is how shall we live as a resurrection people? How shall we live as a resurrection people in a world that's stricken by brokenness and injustice and division? Like, I don't, I don't know how you're walking in here this morning, but I need you to know I'm walking in here with, like, an exceptionally heavy heart <laughs> over all the things that are going on in our world right now. Um, just to, to name a few. This is a headline from this last week, and wave after deadly wave of COVID has claimed a million lives in the United States. Like, I don't even know that our souls are capable of comprehending that kind of grief, that this pandemic has taken that kind of a toll on our country. And then we had to watch this, this mass murder, the shooting in Buffalo that was motivated by racist hate. And these kinds of things are just so maddeningly common in our world. And this was just the latest incident of that. We grieve over a politically motivated shooting that happened at a church in Southern California and the life that was lost in that instance. And then, of course, this has been in front of us now all week. You've seen it, I've seen it, about the shooting in Uvalde and the horrendous loss of life of children and teachers and everything involved with that. This is a story that I don't know if this would make it to you in the same way that it's made it to me, but it's in my face day in and day out. Uh, in the last couple weeks was the release of a report that uncovered uh, a two decades long cover-up of sexual abuse and the scapegoating of victims and whistleblowers in the Southern Baptist Convention. Article after article is being written about this horrendous evil in the life of the church. And so I ask again this question, how are we to live 
as a resurrection people in the midst of a world plagued by these kinds of things? This is the question that's posed to us as Easter people. And I want to say that I think it's best to begin with the end in mind. I think the, best, the only way for us to answer that question, the best way for us to answer that question is to begin with the end in mind. And so here, these are the last words that we read in the book of Revelation. Jesus offers this testimony through John. He says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give to each person according to what they've done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright and morning star. The Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Read those words, and they are reminders to us. They are meant to be reminders to us that God is all in all. All in all. Everyone is welcome, and all the things are, all things are gathered up into his loving embrace where there is fullness of life forever. Like, we have to begin with that end in mind and just sit and contemplate for a moment the radical and practical significance of that promise. Like, how would you act? How would, I, how would we act if we really trusted that in the end, the outcomes of everything of significance were firmly and finally in the hands of the Lord? Like, that they were really His. And that outcomes of all important things weren't up to us. I want to suggest this morning that one of the main things, this is one of the main things that sets Christians apart as moral actors in this world. Because we believe that God is the creator of all things, that in Christ all things hold together, and that one day by the Holy Spirit everything is going to be made right. Because of all of that, we're free to abandon the idea that outcomes are up to us. They are in God's hands. That distinction, I think, is clarified uh, by comparing these two quotes. The first is by, uh, maybe you'll know this guy's name, Niccolo Machiavelli, an Italian diplomat, philosopher, uh, atheist, who said, the ends justify the means. The ends justify the means. Now compare that with something that Martin Luther King Jr. said. In the final analysis, he says, means and ends must cohere because the end is pre-existent in the means, and ultimately, destructive means cannot bring about constructive 
ends. Do you see the difference in sort of the orientation of those two ideas? One by an atheist, another one by a pastor, the atheist who says, whatever you think the ends ought to be, whatever it takes you to get there, totally fine. The only thing that matters is the outcome. Versus a pastor like Martin Luther King Jr. who said, that's not how Christians think and operate. It's actually because we can trust God who says the ends are this, that the means that we employ, the way in which we live, the ethic that shapes our lives, the things that give us purpose in life, that there's a coherence between those means and the ends. Christians are a resurrection people, which means that our, our message is ultimately not about facts and ideas. It's about a way of life, a means. Our way of life is a means that embodies our trust in God and His promises, the end that God says He's going to bring about. Those things go hand in hand. And so I begin there with the end in mind because it's essential to how we read the rest of the New Testament and to how we think about our own actions in the world. We have to live, we seek to live now in light of the future that's promised, that God says he's responsible for. And that takes us over to um, two stories that are captured in Acts 16 that I want us to look at quickly. Let me read these for us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in this attack and Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Pivot to the second part of the story. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a sound, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the doors, prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy 
because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So I want to draw a few things out from that passage, kind of reflect on them in light of some of the headlines that I shared earlier, and then I want to call us to a renewed commitment to living as a resurrection people. So in these two stories, I find this a fascinating juxtaposition of stories that I think have everything in the world to do with this connection between means and ends that I mentioned before. So in the first story, we encounter a girl who seemingly is doing Paul and his companions a service, right? Following them around and exclaiming, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. I mean, there's just, there's nothing like having someone help you do the very thing that you are trying to do for free, right? This girl's going around doing it with them. It was a good end, actually, but the means were all wrong because this girl was a slave. She was possessed by an evil spirit. She was being exploited by others for financial profit. And so finally, Paul would have no more of it and thought, regardless of her message, the means were in every way opposed to the love and the grace of God. And so he casts out the Spirit, and he abandons himself to the consequences, whatever they might be. And they were severe, right? There were severe consequences for Paul and his companions because he cast out this spirit. Paul and Silas, having disrupted a system predicated on abuse, are dragged before the authorities, lied about, stripped, beaten, flogged, and jailed. All because they were unwilling to abide the injustices that were happening to this girl, despite the fact that she was proclaiming the very message that they themselves were proclaiming. All that, and still that night, we read that they're praying and singing songs, hymns, as other people were listening. And then suddenly this violent earthquake rocks the prison, the doors fly open. And listen, I don't know about you, I'm pretty sure I would have skedaddled, right? That earthquake happens, the doors fly open. My first thought is, this is God's uh, escape plan, and I'm out of here. I'm just being honest. <laughs> like, that's what I would have done. But not Paul and Silas. They hung out. They stayed there. They remained. And because they did, they were able to save the life of the very one who was there to do them harm. Like this person who was there to kill them if they got out of line. They saved him and ultimately his whole family. The result of it, again, was that the jailer and his whole family came to believe in God and were baptized. And so here's what I want us to see more than anything else is that for Paul and Silas, the end that drove them was not their self-preservation or even the furtherance of their message. Like that wasn't driving them. They weren't thinking what really matters is that we are preserved and that the message that we care about is announced. They would have had a whole different way of organizing the things that they were doing if that was it. The end for them was Jesus' liberating people from brokenness and injustice and separation from God. That's what they cared about. That was the end. That's what made up their minds about how they were going to think and act and move. And so for us, 
this is what it means for us to be a resurrection people. That the entirety of our lives would increasingly reflect our desire, our desire to be agents of healing and doers of justice and builders of unity. So allow me to pose these questions to us this morning. As people who confess the lordship of Jesus over all things, and who believe that in him and through the Holy Spirit, God is loving history towards its intended end. Friends, what are the expressions of brokenness in the world toward which you desire to move as an agent of healing? What is it that breaks your heart because you know that it breaks God's heart? And how might you move toward it as an agent of healing? Where do you see injustice bringing harm to people and communities? And how might God be calling you or I to bring correction as a doer of justice? How do you witness people being separated from a joyful relationship with God or with others? And what might it mean for you to enter into that as a builder of unity? repairing relationships. I want to suggest this morning, those are the questions and actions that are our birthright as people of the resurrection. We were all born once, and then we were all born again when we came into the loving family of Jesus, and these are the questions and the actions that are our birthright to ask. Where is their brokenness? Where is their injustice? Where is their separation of relationship and how does God want, me, want to use me in those situations? So on that subject of unity, I want to I just wrap up here with a brief reflection on that last part, on this idea of our call to be builders of unity as a resurrection people. I want you to hear uh, Jesus from the gospel passage uh, for this morning in John 17. These are Jesus' words. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry uh, and his life as he moved towards, moves towards the cross. He prays not only for the disciples who walked with him during his time on earth, but he's praying for you and I as those who would come to believe in Jesus on account of the message that has been passed on to us. He prays that we would know unity, that we would be one. He prays that we would know the same kind of unity that has existed from all eternity between our triune God, the loving relationship and unity that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit shared. He's praying that we would know that kind of unity. And he goes even further and says that's Just like love, that kind of unity is actually meant to be a testimony, evidence that Jesus truly is God's Messiah. 
where there is not unity within the Christian family, there is a breach of integrity in terms of Jesus's messiahship. But we have to be absolutely clear about the kind of unity that Jesus had in mind. Because for Jesus, unity that's not rooted in truth is not actually unity. It's something fake. It's something pretend. Jesus himself was truth in human form. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And what Jesus did is he disclosed to us as fully as we will ever know what God is like and what a good life really entails. That's what Jesus did for us. Among many other things, Jesus had no interest in creating a faux unity based on not confronting people with the truth of who he was or who they are or what kind of life God wants for us. Do we get this? Like, Jesus isn't about, like, let's find the lowest common denominator and try to bring everybody in around that. That's not the kind of unity that Jesus is interested in. And I know that you and I know this. I mean, in our families, in our friendships, and our co-working relationships, we know about faux unity. We know how to keep the peace. We know how to speak in polite company. We know how to not rock the boat. Who, you know, what to not say around what kinds of people, right? And listen, I want to be really clear that there's a time and a place for things, and we need wisdom to know who can hear what when, right? Like, there's just wisdom that's needed. But here's why I bring this up. Um, I, I hope this will resonate with you. It feels imperative that I say this this morning as a pastor. So if this is just for me, I hope you'll, you'll grant me that, um, but I hope you see why it matters for us. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned this unfolding scandal um, in the life of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so what has happened is that through detailed reporting, what's been clearly shown is that pastors and executive leaders have constantly used the idea of maintaining unity as a pretense for not disclosing incidents of sexual abuse. Victims have been constantly scapegoated for failing to consider the disunity that they would cause if they made too much noise about what had happened to them. So the result wasn't only the multiplication of further occurrences because these perpetrators weren't dealt with, but it underwrote the, the creation of systems where power itself came to be abused which is a whole other kind of thing, and I would even consider it an idol. So the point here isn't to like heap shame on the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm not Southern Baptist, you're not Southern Baptist, we may not have those kinds of connections. It's, it's to use this as a moment to reflect on just how pervasive this same dynamic is in many other Christian circles. Jesus will have nothing to do with a faux unity that comes at the expense of injured persons and corrupt churches. Nothing. Jesus will have no part of it. Churches and church systems that think that they're preserving unity by pushing issues of sexual abuse and abuse of power and spiritual abuse under the rug have no share in Jesus. None. They are an affront to the gospel.
uh, one in four, I believe, is the, the statistic of women who will have experienced sexual abuse in the course of their life. So just think about, for a moment, um, how many women uh, have been a part of this church over the years, and whether or not it was like, you know, uh, happened because of the church or in other spaces. Just think of the numbers of women, one in four, (laughs) that have experienced sexual abuse. And that's to say nothing of the abuse of power and spiritual abuse on the part of clergy and church systems. And just think of how imperative it must be then for the body of Christ to see it, to name it, to expose it, and to reconcile it. And there can be no unity. There can be no answer to this prayer that Jesus prays in John 17 if we're not willing to have these things unmasked. And so here's the deal, friends. Our living as a resurrection people entails moving toward brokenness as agents of healing. It entails exposing oppression as those who are committed to justice. And it entails repairing relationships as those who are committed to being builders of unity. But here's the thing, the last thing to say. That unity is rooted in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ and in nothing else. That's what Jesus prayed for. Jesus is the light that drives out every manifestation of darkness that can possibly exist. And where where we are ever unwilling to shine the light of Christ on any aspect of darkness, we're thwarting the unity that God wants for us to know and through which other people would come to know Christ himself. Let me pray for us. Uh, actually, sorry, I'll, I'll, let me pray and then I'll move us into the prayers of the people. Uh, Father, as we've spent time in these texts this morning and in, in Revelation 22 and thinking about the end that you are committed to bringing about, in Acts and the, the juxtaposition of these stories we see in Paul and Silas, an unwillingness Um, to protect themselves at the expense of what it means to be true followers of you. And in John, as we think about Jesus praying for us here today and the kind of unity he means for us to enjoy, to know, and uh, to dwell in, just help us to see, God, any expressions of darkness that exist in our life or in the lives of those around us, help us to know and to to see and to know what it means to shine the light of Christ on those things that you might be all in all. Christ's name, amen.